Welcome to Opinion Has It. I'm Elmira Bayrosley. For decades, American leaders have viewed the United States as the indispensable nation. We are known as the indispensable nation for good reason. That has been true for the century past, and it will be true for the century to come. And part of what makes America an exceptional nation is that we are also an indispensable nation. The phrase's meaning boils down to a simple idea. Only the U.S. had the power to guarantee global security. And yet, on September 11, 2001, America's own security was breached. We understand that a plane has crashed into the World Trade Center. We don't know anything more than that. We don't know if it was a commercial aircraft. And all of a sudden, it smashed right dead into the center of the World Trade Center. Two planes have crashed into the World Trade Center, an apparent terrorist attack on the country. And you can see the two towers, a huge explosion now raining debris on all of us. Terrorists carried out a major attack on the territory of the world's only superpower. For many in the U.S., there was only one solution. Remind the world who was boss. In a single instant, we realized that this will be a decisive decade in the history of liberty that we've been called to a unique role in human events. Terror unanswered can not only bring down buildings, it can threaten the stability of legitimate governments. And you know what? We're not going to allow it. Over the last two decades, the U.S. has fought terrorism on many fronts. Too many fronts, it's often argued. But the global war on terror launched by President George W. Bush has done little to deliver peace in the Middle East, Africa, or anywhere else. And now with the Taliban back in control in Afghanistan, the world is asking a fundamental question. Is the indispensable nation dispensable? Hi, Stephen. Hello. How are you? Good. How are you doing? Here to help us answer this question is Stephen Wertheim. Close some windows to my many tabs. Uh, to Stephen is a senior fellow in the American Statecraft Program at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. He is the author of Tomorrow the World The Birth of U.S. Global Supremacy. Thanks for organizing this. Stephen, American politicians have used the idea that the U.S. is the indispensable nation to justify military interventions all over the world. It's a phrase that was actually coined by my former boss, Madeleine Albright, in 1998. But you point out that the idea extends back to World War II. What was the purpose of American power back then, and was it justified? As World War II began in Europe, Uh, Americans engaged in a very difficult debate over what role the United States should play in the war in the world. Now, prior to World War II, there had been a longstanding tradition that the United States should avoid entering into political and military entanglements, a term that was used by uh, some of the founding generation, like uh, Thomas Jefferson. Uh, the idea was that the, the New World was the proper sphere in which the United States would exert its leadership. But the Old World back in Europe uh, and also covering Asia, that was a separate matter. That was a corrupt sphere where if the United States tried to 
use military power and enter into uh, political commitments, it would only corrupt itself and do itself harm. And the United States essentially tried to work within that framework for what is still most of its history. And so in the 1930s, uh, there was a, a movement to keep the United States out of a looming war, uh, first in Asia and then in Europe. And so what happened over a, I think it was actually a quite uh, short amount of time from the fall of France to Nazi Germany, a stunning event in the middle of 1940, through the attack on Pearl Harbor that brought the United States into the war, uh, the United States recalculated its role in the world and fearing that totalitarian powers might for the first time come to become uh, the dominant powers in Europe and Asia and thus in most centers of global power, they decided the United States uh, had to seek supremacy for itself. And so that initiated a new era for the United States in the world in which the United States would uh, pursue uh, economic, political, and military dominance in principle on a global scale. That didn't mean the United States would act wherever there was a conflict, but it did mean that the United States perceived a vital interest in matters that pertain to where the overall distribution of power lie. And uh, that continued uh, through the end of World War II and uh, into the Cold War. And how did the end of the Cold War affect America's view of its role in the world and its foreign policy, particularly in the 1990s? So you might have thought that with the Soviet Union having completely collapsed in dramatic and unpredicted fashion, uh, the United States would look around the world, proclaim victory, and send a lot of its troops home. And to some extent, that's what the United States did. Uh, it did retract its military budgets over the course of the 1990s in the wake of the Soviet collapse, if you look at it as a percentage of GDP, and some military bases were closed. But the bigger picture is quite different. Instead of retracting American power, uh, U.S. foreign policymakers across multiple political parties decided that the United States should seek uh, and achieve a greater dominance than ever before. From that point of view, the collapse of the Soviet Union actually represented a great opportunity now to make U.S. leadership extend across the entire world and not just the so-called free world uh, during the Cold War. That is to say, the world, the, the part of the world that was not under communist rule. And so the United States en ended up uh, actually expanding its military commitments and deployments, uh, its used force far more frequently since 1991, since the demise of the Soviet Union, than it did during the Cold War itself. Uh, and it's entered into more security commitments through NATO and other military alliances, uh, not fewer. And yet, as Stephen notes, the end of the Cold War did spur doubts about America's deployments and commitments abroad. During the 2000 presidential campaign, George W. Bush called for a more humble approach to foreign policy. I just don't think it's the role of the United States to walk into a country and say, we do it this way, so should you. 
and I think we can help. But the attacks on 9-11 changed everything. Tonight we are a country awakened to danger and called to defend freedom. Our grief has turned to anger and anger to resolution. Whether we bring our enemies to justice or bring justice to our enemies, justice will be done. Bush didn't only want to find and punish the perpetrators of the attack. He wanted to launch an expansive war, which looked nothing like the interventions of the 1990s. Now this war will not be like the war against Iraq a decade ago, with the decisive liberation of territory and a swift conclusion. It will not look like the air war above Kosovo two years ago, where no ground troops were used and not a single American was lost in combat. Our response involves far more than instant retaliation and isolated strikes. Americans should not expect one battle, but a lengthy campaign, unlike any other we have ever seen. The Bush administration argued that this would make Americans safer. Stephen says its true purpose was to make American power seem essential again. Well, from the very start after 9-11, Bush proclaimed a, a kind of war against evil. Uh, he announced, actually on that evening of September 11th, that America was targeted for attack because we're the brightest beacon for freedom and opportunity in the world. So already there was a kind of a narrative being formed that the United States did not face a particular distinct enemy, that the issue was more than providing security, answering an attack, preventing attack in the future, but rather this was a struggle that would express who America was as a country on the world stage that the United States having been targeted for its beacon of freedom and opportunity would almost inevitably be targeted by those who, to quote Bush again, hate us for our freedoms. And therefore in this existential struggle, uh, the United States would always have enemies and the only sensible course was to kill as many of them as possible and try to prove to the rest that we are indeed the beacon of freedom and they should join uh, us and not the side of the terrorists and the other kinds of resistors. So I, I, I think what is so important to think about uh, as we wrestle with the legacy of 9-11 is why it was that, it wasn't just Bush, by the way, virtually no one said, well, look, let's keep this targeted. Let's focus on al-Qaeda, the organization responsible for this grievous attack on the Twin Towers and on the Pentagon. Let's do everything in our power to decimate that group and hold responsible anyone who's been aiding that group. But that's it. And if we can do that, we will have solved our threat. That is very much not the position uh, that George W. Bush took, but also not the position taken by uh, mainstream figures in our, in our politics or in intellectual circles. And I think one of the reasons that that was, was that it would give the United States in a 
terribly paradoxical sense, too little to do. It could be a, a short and rather mundane operation of choking off financial flows, going after what was, a, in all, all things considered, a pretty small terrorist group, Al-Qaeda. It might have been over rather quickly. But there was a thirst to do much more than that, to demonstrate that American power was uh, as indispensable as your former boss, Madeleine Albright, uh, claimed that it was uh, several years before in, in 1998, when she was uh, justifying bombing Iraq before the uh, Iraq War uh, of 2003. So one of the things the Bush administration wanted to do in Afghanistan and Iraq was to export democracy and essentially nation build, even though he, he said that he was against nation building. Clearly, that hasn't worked. You say it also hurt America's international standing and made the world less safe. How? Well, the United States essentially went to war with a great portion of the world. Right now, just try looking up how many countries is the United States at war with? It is not an easy question to answer. This is the fruit of uh, what the United States embarked upon after the 9-11 attacks. Uh, not just going to war against the entity that grievously attacked us, but declaring an open-ended war on terror or evil or something of that nature, uh, a crusade for unclear purposes, but one that was supposed to demonstrate uh, American power and transform an entire region of the world. And so what, what that has done is given a license for successive presidents to um, undertake lethal operations in a very intense way in Iraq and Afghanistan uh, and in less obvious but incredibly damaging ways through drone strikes or special operations raids. And this is a war that's still ongoing. These tactics didn't do much for America's reputation abroad, but they also weren't popular at home. Within the U.S., public opinion quickly turned against Bush's wars, especially the war in Iraq. In March 2003, 72% of Americans supported the use of military force there. Four years later, that share had dropped to 34%. During the 2008 presidential election, Iraq was a defining issue. The Democratic candidate Barack Obama saw how unpopular the war was, so he promised to end it and to bring about fundamental change in U.S. foreign policy. As somebody who never supported this war, thought it was a bad idea, I don't want to just end the war, but I want to end the mindset that got us in the war in the first place. That's the kind of leadership I'm going to provide. Obama's opposition to the Iraq war helped him win the White House. But he didn't end up transforming U.S. foreign policy at all. There is no question we are at war once again, and this first phase is to take out Gaddafi's air defenses. Throughout the night, the U.S. pounded Libya. The strikes began with more than 110 Tomahawk missiles launched mostly from U.S. ships and submarine. President Barack Obama took to the airwaves to tell the American people why he ordered this. 
Some nations may be able to turn a blind eye to atrocities in other countries. The United States of America is different. And as President, I refuse to wait for the images of slaughter and mass graves before taking action. This shows just how hard it was for Americans to let go of the idea of being the indispensable nation. So if you think about it on the whole, what Obama did was adopt friendlier language uh, for the war on terror. He made a show of being more multilateral about things. He surged in Afghanistan, but then drew down in Afghanistan and moved the U.S. counterterrorism footing to a low and no footprint method of operation through special forces raids and drone strikes. But none of that really amounted to ending the war. And I think what he showed is that even though uh, he could um, describe the war on terrorism no longer even in the terms of war as a kind of technocratic campaign to, to, to counter extremism, the public nevertheless uh, came to worry that we had existential enemies. Why else were we killing people routinely? Uh, and began to suspect, at least uh, those on the right, that uh, Obama was not focused on uh, enough of our, of our enemies and needed to take the gloves off. And that is in part what Donald Trump promised to do when he ran for, for president. And picking up on that, you've said that Trump came to power by exploiting the fears spawned by America's endless wars. But rather than simply ending America's wars abroad, Trump seemed to want to bring them home. How did Trump use the legacy of 9-11 to divide and destabilize America? When you go to war in an open-ended fashion for goals that are not achievable, a number of bad things happen, and they've happened now for two decades. In order to go to war, one creates a sense of existential fear to explain why we are putting our people, our service members, in harm's way and, and asking them to make the ultimate sacrifice. So first of all, in inflation of the threats that we face uh, in an entire region, the greater Middle East, begins to occur. And then because our goals are unwinnable, the public, which has been made to fear the enemy, starts to wonder, are we winning? And if we are winning, why aren't we leaving? And this fear festered. Uh, I'm not sure that you could have a nativist movement in the country uh, in the way that uh, Donald Trump's movement uh, took form without, at that point, 15 years almost of fear whipped up uh, by a sense that uh, we had grave enemies across a huge arc of the earth and had to essentially be there to kill them indefinitely, uh, or else they might come for us. He also did something innovative and connected our fears of, of foreigners distant from North America and invested those fears in immigrants, uh, especially those coming in through the border in Mexico. And this is, a, I think, a strong part of the appeal of the distinctly Trumpian core. 
of his support. As problematic as Trump's domestic rhetoric was, Stephen does give him credit for one thing. Under his leadership, the U.S. finally took the first steps away from acting as the indispensable nation. Americanism, not globalism, will be our credo. For example, in 2019, Trump withdrew troops from northern Syria, though he abandoned America's Kurdish allies in the process. And in 2020, he signed a deal with the Taliban, who had waged a 20-year fight against the U.S.-backed government. The United States and the Taliban have signed an agreement aimed at ending nearly two decades of conflict in Afghanistan. The agreement establishes a timetable for the phased withdrawal of U.S. troops in exchange for guarantees from the Taliban not to allow groups, including al-Qaeda, to operate in their territory. When Trump's successor Joe Biden entered the White House, he faced a difficult decision. Would he continue down the path Trump had charted or revert to the consensus that had governed U.S. foreign policy for decades. On Afghanistan, he soon made his choice clear. We cannot continue the cycle of extending or expanding our military presence in Afghanistan, hoping to create ideal conditions for the withdrawal and expecting a different result. But America's rapid withdrawal from Afghanistan went even worse than many had predicted. The Taliban is in control of Afghanistan. The country's president has fled, and Western countries are scrambling to get people out. As the U.S. scrambles to control the mayhem at the Kabul airport, the situation is growing increasingly dire for thousands of Afghans trying to flee the Taliban. Desperate crowds had been rushing the runway, trying to get on board planes, even clinging to aircraft as they taxied for takeoff. But Stephen maintains that the only alternative was more war. Now, there are two questions here that are somewhat separate, though they're also deeply connected. The first question is, was Biden correct to decide to withdraw all U.S. ground troops this year, uh, more or less pursuant to the agreement that his predecessor had negotiated with the Taliban as part of the Doha agreement? That, I think, is the fundamental choice. And uh, to my mind, Joe Biden made the right decision. Uh, the war in Afghanistan, contrary to what some say, wasn't sustainable, wasn't low in cost, and uh, there was no equilibrium. Uh, the Taliban were consistently making gains. Uh, perhaps uh, 10,000 Afghans were dying from the conflict every year over a number of years. Americans were also fighting and dying, uh, except in the period where the United States had reached an agreement with the Taliban, and either the United States was literally going to stay there forever, or it ought to leave uh, and ought to leave immediately. Then there's the question of how well did the Biden administration plan for and execute the withdrawal of U.S. forces, which ultimately became a withdrawal of U.S. personnel including an evacuation of the U.S. Embassy in Kabul. Now, that is a uh, difficult question to answer, I think, at this point in time. I know I'm giving you the historian's answer, uh, but um, because we, we have to go back and understand exactly what did the administration and the various agencies understand and project and when. Uh, because as the administration has pointed out, Mounting a quicker and fuller withdrawal 
of Americans and Afghans at a time when it was not clear that the Afghan government uh, would completely lose the war might have become a self-fulfilling prophecy uh, and caused the Afghan security forces to lose confidence in their own viability and create the very outcome that we'd hoped to avoid, uh, which was a complete Taliban takeover of Afghanistan. So I think this is an issue that Congress should be investigating. I'm pretty sure Congress will investigate and ask difficult questions. And I'm all, I'm all for doing that. But I think we should understand that there's no good way to lose a war to the Taliban. That is not going to produce something rosy at the end of it. What obligations does the U.S. have to the people of Afghanistan at this point? Well, I would like to see out of this uh, terrible defeat a new kind of American engagement in the world. And that could start with Afghanistan, where I think it was absolutely correct and overdue to end the war. But now I think it's important to uh, be welcoming of people that have uh, fought alongside the United States or whom the United States was protecting and are vulnerable now to the Taliban to welcome them, uh, whether it's here into the United States or to uh, other countries. And I think not just in this case, but in general, if we have a kind of humanitarianism that isn't defined any longer by dropping bombs to stop the bad guys, but rather is defined by helping people directly, that would do us uh, a great deal of good. It would avoid uh, unnecessary wars uh, that are very costly to ourselves and that often do not actually help and achieve humanitarian outcomes. Uh, and we can actually do good in the world by engaging people directly in non-military fashions. But no discussion of the U.S. military's proper role in the world would be complete without recognizing that the U.S. is no longer the only global superpower in town. China, 1.3 billion people, an economy projected to become larger than ours in just a few years, and a rapidly growing military. How much trouble are we in? China's rise has given U.S. foreign policy a new focal point. In fact, the need to confront and contain China is one of the only things Republicans and Democrats agree on. China has an overall goal, and I don't criticize them for the goal, but they have an overall goal to become the leading country in the world, the wealthiest country in the world, and the most powerful country in the world. That's not going to happen on my watch. We see the Chinese Communist Party also for what it is, the central threat of our times. Our vigorous diplomacy has helped lead an international awakening to the threat of the CCP. But Stephen says these fears are overblown. Well, there's no question that China's rise, its extraordinary rise, is something that the United States has to contend with uh, over the long term. And it's one of the reasons I think you're seeing both the Trump and the Biden administration seeking to reduce the U.S. level of commitment in the greater Middle East. Uh, because they realize correctly that 
uh, there is a much bigger challenge out there. At the same time, I'm quite worried about the potential for us to inflate the China threat, much as we've inflated the threat of terrorism and threats from countries like Iraq uh, in the greater Middle East over the past several decades. So I think one of the main challenges that China poses is economic. And I think that's what most Americans are responding to when they uh, are express concern about China. But the response to that challenge is going to be also economic. It's going to be making investments in the United States. But what I'm worried about is a kind of inflation of the various challenges China poses, uh, such that it seems that China is a monolith and every challenge it poses in one domain uh, reflects some kind of Chinese plot to achieve world domination in every domain. China has actually not been militarily very aggressive over the past several decades. It's doing things uh, that are objectionable in the South China Sea, things that are closer to China, but it has not sought so far to project military power on hundreds of bases like the United States has all around the world. It has not concluded uh, formal military alliances. It has uh, mainly sought to spread uh, its economic influence through the Belt and Road Initiative and pretty lavish financing, uh, which is not entirely a bad thing, though it needs to be closely watched. So I think a lot of American leaders say that China, the, the challenge of China is not primarily a military challenge. And I think we should make sure to think through the implications of that uh, sentiment, uh, because what would be truly damaging, and frankly, it could be much more damaging to the United States than our wars in the greater Middle East have been, over the last two decades, as damaging as that has been, if we uh, get into a great power war over an issue like Taiwan. Uh, that would be a true disaster that could be extremely costly for us. We need to think very carefully about how to avoid that kind of challenge. And it's one that the United States hasn't had to think about really since the collapse of the Soviet Union. Most U.S. foreign policy challenges over this uh, three-decade span have had to do with the United States uh, confronting much weaker actors, whether they are states or terrorist groups. Now we have a significant rival where we really can't indulge in fantasies that we're going to overthrow the Chinese Communist Party or anything like that. Stephen, 20 years after 9-11, we seem to be at another turning point in American foreign policy. What should the purpose of American power be today? You know, I don't think many people have a very good answer to that question. And I've always thought that if you don't have a very good purpose for a great amount of power, maybe it's the power that should go rather than trying to invent some kind of purpose for it. So I think the real question is what do we want as a country? Uh, and I think we should probably listen to the American people who uh, have been uh, saying for more than a decade that it's time to do less nation building abroad and do more nation building here at home. 
I think that's the main uh, place where we need to to uh, do a lot of work, not just to make people's lives better across the country, uh, but also to heal the our our domestic divisions that have been uh, so egregious in recent years. That's got to be priority number one. And then if you think about our challenges uh, internationally, rather than gravitate straight to China or some next big military competitor, let's think about what are the actual threats that are most severe to the American people where they live and work. Well, we're speaking right now over Zoom because of a pandemic. I think the pandemic has greatly affected the security of Americans and the prosperity of Americans. So pandemic disease has to be at the top of that list. And climate change, too, has to be at the top of that list. These are the two greatest threats that I see internationally. China is a significant issue. I think some deterrence of China is warranted, but that's a a third issue, and it's important to get our priorities straight. And by the way, we really can't do things like solve the climate crisis without China being part of that. So it's important to get our priorities right. And uh, what I'm worried about uh, is the continuation of a tendency that goes along with this idea that the United States is the indispensable nation uh, to define our problems in military terms and come up with military solutions to problems that really aren't susceptible to that kind of treatment. Stephen, thank you so much. Oh, thank you. This was a pleasure. That was Stephen Wertheim. He's the author of Tomorrow the World, The Birth of U.S. Global Supremacy. And that's it for this episode. Thanks for listening. We'd love to hear what you think. Please rate and review our podcast. Better yet, subscribe on your favorite listening app. You can also follow us on Twitter by searching for at ProSyn. That's P-R-O-S-Y-N. Until next time, I'm Elmira Bayrosley. Opinion Has It is produced and edited by Kasha Brusalian. Special thanks to Project Syndicate editors Whitney Arana and Jonathan Stein.